Now, boys and girls, I'm going to give you an assignment. I want you to write a theme. Project-based competency-based education, online and hybrid classes, demand every disruption of global education systems in history. I'm Jimmy Leonard. This is Kickin' It New School. Vouchers and school choice. Five questions to ask when choosing a school. Vouchers. It's that coupon code you get when your flight's been canceled one hour before it's supposed to leave and you're left stranded in an airport. Why, yes, sir, it's our fault you can't get home, but instead of just refunding you like a normal company, we're going to pay you in this imaginary currency called airline miles, which are non-transferable, and if you don't use in 12 months, will disappear forever. We realize this does nothing to address your current actual problem of being stranded in an airport with nowhere to sleep tonight, but this counter is closed, so please call our customer service line and stay on hold for the next six hours so we can then tell you how impossible it will be to rebook your flight today. Thank you for choosing Delta. School vouchers has been one of the hottest education topics of the past few years, and it's bound to get even more divisive in the next election cycle. And when it comes to vouchers, as is often the case with ed policy issues, there's a lot of confusion about what it means, who it benefits, and what other important considerations families should have before hopping on the political bandwagon. Because vouchers is one of those topics that's almost weirdly political, and I really want to separate it from that in this conversation. So in this episode, I'm talking about what are school vouchers, what are the pros and cons of using them, and perhaps most importantly, voucher or not, what are some questions that parents really should ask before choosing a new school? And it's that last part that this whole conversation hinges upon, because if you don't know this already, school vouchers is really just a code word for school choice. Essentially, a voucher system allows parents to use taxpayer funding that would have ordinarily gone to their child's education at a public school in order to pay for their child's private school tuition. It's not just an American thing, by the way. Let's listen to how this system already works in Sweden. This school in Stockholm is one of the most popular private schools in the area. 15-year-old Erin pays for her education using her education vouchers. Since the beginning of the 90s, Sweden has issued vouchers for every child between the age of 7 and 19 years old, which can be used in all schools, regardless of whether they're state or privately run. Charming, right? So that was a 2012 video clip from Learning World, which was a program of Euronews that did these little inspiring reports on global education success stories. Really perfect for me, honestly, but unfortunately, they stopped making these videos about five or six years ago, which I guess we can only take to mean that the world ran out of education success stories. Yes, all of our education success stories are on indefinite back order, stuck in a shipping container somewhere off the coast of California, nestled in nicely with a bunch of semiconductors and furniture and all of my hopes and dreams. So we'll wait on that. But in case you missed it, the real takeaway of that clip was the last part. Vouchers can be used in any school, regardless of whether the schools are state or privately run. 
So in a voucher-less system, the government allocates tax dollars to state-funded public schools based on how many students are enrolled there. Any kid in the district then has the option for a free and public education funded by the government, and if they choose to not take that option, their family still pays property taxes, but they just don't personally receive any funding toward their child's education. So that's what we're used to. This is like your mom packing tuna salad and carrot sticks in a little brown paper bag and saying, here's your lunch. This is all I'm giving you today, whether you like it or not. If you choose to throw it away and buy something tastier, you're on your own to pay for it. But in a voucher system, though, families can decide where to spend their portion of the government funding. This is like your mom saying, here's $5, buy your own lunch. Promise me that you won't just eat Sour Patch Kids and Hot Cheetos. Yes, that's right. In this analogy, private schools are bags of flaming hot Cheetos. Dangerously delicious. And as much as we in the education world love to judge our own practices by the long Scandinavian measuring stick of American school shame, Sweden actually can't take credit for this idea. Some of the earliest versions of a voucher system came about in the late 1800s, and the concept has had vocal political and academic support in the U.S. for at least the past half century. You know, in some ways, this is like the OG government stimulus check. Uncle Sam's like, I know you need money, but I'm not going to tell you how to spend it. Just here you go. Now, in practice, of course, vouchers are not the same as getting a check. There are some rules, and not every state runs it exactly the same way. There's a lot of different ways to roll this out, involving eligibility requirements, whether that's residence within a particular public school district, or qualification based on a certain income threshold intended to prioritize low-income families who maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to afford private school. Sometimes there are also conditional requirements. In many places, voucher students still have to take state standardized testing, even if they switch to a private school. And also the exact amount of the voucher scholarship can vary quite a bit from one program to the next. But generally speaking, we can summarize vouchers as families receiving a chunk of money, which they can then use at any school they choose. As I said earlier, this idea has had some traction in the past few decades. As of this recording, voucher programs of some form exist in 16 states and two other places that should be states, but aren't. Yeah, I see you, DC and Puerto Rico. That was a shout out just for you guys. Like and subscribe. Hashtag 52 states of kicking it new school. Anyway, some of these voucher programs are relatively new and struggling to gain traction, like Tennessee's Education Savings Account Pilot Program, which is proposed just for Memphis and Nashville and is currently paused due to a tangle of litigation that I really don't have time or desire to get into in this episode. No offense, Tennessee. I love you too. Like and subscribe. And some of these programs are well-established and generally well-liked, actually, such as the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, which has just been rocking it in Wisconsin for more than 30 years and has nearly 29,000 students participating in its voucher program this school year. Those numbers, by the way, come from edchoice.org. So that's what vouchers are. Let's get into the pros and cons. I'm going to make it easy on myself and start with the pros because the advantages are honestly pretty obvious to me. Hmm. Do you want to send your kid to the terrible soul-sucking public school where they have few opportunities to jumpstart their higher education? Or do you want to send them to the new and shiny STEM, STEAM, college prep, whatever private school with snazzy uniforms and a robotics team? 
I mean, that's like saying, do you want this $20 handbag from Walmart or this $2,000 Gucci purse? Do you want to watch Boba Fett on your cracked phone screen or on this 86-inch 8K TV? Do you want to eat a Little Caesars hot and ready for dinner or have food? These are easy questions. If the state gives you money for school, you can spend it how you want. And many families love the idea of being able to use money that would have been set aside for their student at a public school toward another option that just seems better to them. Private schools, religious schools, charter schools, hybrid schools, alternative schools, online schools, schools for witchcraft and wizardry, in some cases even homeschooling expenses, can qualify for vouchers. And for a lot of families, this just makes sense. Their kid, their funding, their choice. On the conservative side of thinking, vouchers have long been touted as a way out of controversial educational topics or as a way to bring faith into the education process. With some of the recent topics we've had on this show, I think it fairly goes the other way too. Even more liberally-minded families are finding issues with some of the restrictions on public school curricula in the last few years, and they want to choose their own. And this isn't always critical race theory, evolution versus creationism, sexuality in the second grade classroom kind of controversial stuff. In many cases, it's just about wanting to place students in a gifted school or a school that emphasizes music or a STEM school. Or this is just families wanting to choose their focus instead of feeling limited by the public school offerings. Advocates for voucher systems also say that vouchers promote better schools through free market competition. Basically, when schools have to compete for students, the thinking is that they'll up their game. Treat it like a business. Enrollment has to be earned so schools better themselves and maybe even public schools will step it up to keep from losing so many kids. Of course, another advantage of vouchers is that they level the playing field for elite schools. Students who can't afford private tuition on their own might now be able to access a high-cost institution thanks to vouchers. This can lead to more socioeconomic diversity at elite schools without taking budget away from the private school itself. Basically, the scholarships come from the government and the school itself doesn't have to give out so much financial aid. This next one maybe sounds a little cynical, but it's often more cost-effective for the state to do something like this. Critically, states can determine the amount of a voucher and the eligibility requirements. And that amount doesn't necessarily have to equate to the real cost of enrolling a kid in public school. So for example, a state could say your voucher is capped at $3,000 per semester, and you only get one if your family's income is less than 250% of the poverty line. Well, it might actually be a lot more than $3,000 to fully fund that same student at a public school, and they would have to do it for everyone, not just the kids whose families are deemed low income. And by the way, this is not just a hypothetical here. The evidence backs this up. A 2006 study by Dr. Susan Odd of John Hopkins University found that in a 16-year period, 11 voucher programs in eight states saved a total of more than $440 million for state governments and local school districts. Because of this very thing I'm talking about, as every empty nester knows, it is much cheaper to just give your kids some money and then have them find their own place than to actually pay their full living expenses at home. 
Junior, I will literally pay you to move out of the basement and get off my health insurance. Here's your family voucher. See you at Christmas. I'm changing all the locks. So more choice, more competition, better fit for students, actually saving money for state governments and local districts. Why doesn't everyone have vouchers? What's the catch? Well, the number one sticking point for most opponents of the voucher system is separation of church and state. For some people, it's that uncomfortable, heebie-jeebie feeling of knowing that taxpayer money is paying tuition at a religious school. And I don't think it's just bigotry toward Christians here. There's more going on, which we'll get into, but generally churches are supposed to be tax-exempt not tax-supported. I know, that wasn't even funny. But hey, and time out here for a second. If you're sitting in your car right now mumbling to yourself that public schools are also tax-exempt, I know, that's not the point. I'm talking about places that openly pledge allegiance to one nation under God, and they say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, or Ad Mubarak, okay? We're an inclusive podcast here at Kicking It New School, but a lot of people don't like tax dollars going to any religious institution. But I said there's more to it. So I think in a lot of cases, the religious aspect is really just a mask. The wider and perhaps less politically charged offshoot of a give to Jesus what is Caesar's policy is the word accountability. Public schools have accountability for what they're allowed to do with taxpayer dollars. They have standards for curriculum they have to follow. They have benchmarks for standardized testing that students have to meet. They are ultimately accountable to school boards and elected public officials. Since No Child Left Behind went into effect, public schools have to make measurable adequate yearly progress, or AYP. Failure to meet AYP over a period of multiple years can lead to the state stepping in and eventually a drastic restructure of the school district where basically everybody gets pink slipped while the state takes over. Private schools aren't subject to any of that. Now, I can literally hear your eyes rolling as you're thinking, yeah, but Common Core standards are a joke, and standardized testing is garbage, and a ton of schools don't meet AYP anyway, and nothing really happens when they fail, etc., etc., etc. And if you're thinking those things, you're not wrong. There are massive inadequacies and loopholes with Common Core and No Child Left Behind. But as flawed as the system is, it's an effort toward transparency. It's an effort towards standards and oversight, and private schools don't have any of that. They effectively can teach whatever curriculum they want, including things that many people would view as biased or intolerant or incomplete or misleading, and they aren't required by the state to make AYP. This is actually the reason that in many school voucher programs, the state stipulates that students using the voucher must still take the state standardized testing even when they're at a private school. Annoying as that is, it's an attempt to shine some light inside the black box and see if these private school kids are actually learning anything. You might look fly in your prep school uniform, and that's a cool Instagram story of your field trip to the Smithsonian, but can you even do basic math? And when it comes down to it, in many cases, I think it's the fear of the unknown. Private schools can talk a big game about how they're rigorous and they have all these great academic programs, but who are they accountable to in saying that? And if there's something sketchy going on beneath the surface, who are they accountable to in order to make sure those issues come to light? 
And this is important to mention because despite what people may try to tell you in this debate about private being better than public, the data is honestly inconclusive on that point. In writing this piece, I read a policy brief called The Evidence on Charter Schools and Test Scores by Dr. Matthew DiCarlo from the nonprofit Albert Schenker Institute. And it's really just this outrageously long PDF that looks at a bunch of comparisons from different states to more or less conclude that sometimes private school kids test better than public school kids, and sometimes they don't. Great study, right? But it really is as simple as that. There, there's no sweeping generalization here about who tests better. It's unhelpful. It'd be great if we could just end the debate once and for all and say this is better or this is worse, but it's also enlightening to the extent that while many charter and private schools say they're doing something way better than public schools, in many cases, it is statistically unclear if they actually are. Now, this, of course, is assuming that we think state standardized testing should be our primary measure of school success, which a lot of people don't. And I have thoughts on that, too. But I digress. Episode for another time. The negative to vouchers here in some people's minds is that they take money away from public oversight and accountability and they put it into a system that essentially has no rules, has no oversight, and hasn't exactly proven that it does a better job. So then the last con goes back to the idea of market forces. Is it actually in students' best interest to have schools competing for voucher kids? Again, what sounds great in theory is pretty muddled in practice. So really a few points here. Number one, vouchers often don't cover full private tuition. It's like if I get a $7,000 tax credit for buying an electric vehicle. Okay, cool. I still can't afford a Tesla. So offering that tax credit doesn't help me. Especially for low-income kids, vouchers aren't really bridging the socioeconomic gap because even with the voucher, many kids still can't afford to attend the school of their choice, and so they just don't use the voucher and then they stay at public school. So many critics here cite vouchers as helping upper-middle-class kids get out of a public school and into a private school, but essentially making no difference to the lowest income bracket who are the ones who are supposed to be helped through a voucher system. Number two, private schools don't have to accept every kid. If a kid is perceived as having a behavior problem or doesn't meet some arbitrary academic or moral standard, they can just be kicked out. I've worked at a private school. I've seen kids kicked out on some pretty shaky reasoning. So when private schools talk about their amazing graduation rates or their super high SAT scores, it's like, well, that's kind of like a trial lawyer who says I've never lost a case. If a student seems like a losing case, the school just says no. So it doesn't skew their numbers. It's not really market forces to let students choose the best school as much as it is to let schools compete for the best students. And to that point, sometimes too many charter schools can dilute the talent pool in an area, not even just for students, but for teaching and administrative staff. The potential downside of competition is that you can end up in this race to zero, where schools have to lower their own operating costs to stay competitive, sometimes meaning cuts to programs or staff salaries. And then there's this revolving door of new charters and this highly transient student population constantly switching schools or cherry picking programs from different schools, making it difficult for any one program to fully establish in a community. Number four, on a related note, grade inflation. 
This is often a concern whenever we have this conversation about school choice. So the only thing that families want more than sending little Johnny to the fancy prep school is having little Johnny get all A's at the fancy prep school. And if he doesn't, well, it's probably the school's fault, right? And little Johnny should just choose to enroll somewhere else. And schools know this. Again, often no accountable standards in private schools and pretty obvious incentive to want to keep families paying tuition and enrolling their kids. So we have to wonder, what does it really mean if a kid says she has all A's? The concern is that the educational value of school is diluted because it becomes about pleasing the customer. And then lastly, many people argue that too many charters increase segregation and division by taking students out of the public school melting pot and putting them into homogenous enclaves where they will only meet staff and students who largely think, act, and in many cases, look like they do. So those are just some cons. Again, these are all valid concerns, which is why I want to get to my last segment, what questions should parents ask before choosing a new school? So I know I just rattled off all these negatives, but it should surprise you not at all that I personally am in favor of school choice. That's not because I have something against public school teachers. I actually started my career as a public school teacher. There are some amazingly talented and dedicated people in that profession, but there are also a lot of problems with the system. And if something's not working for a family, I think it should be their right to explore other options. And I don't necessarily have an issue with the concept of vouchers as a means to do that. But I think it's really important that families aren't just spending their voucher money on some kind of charter school snake oil that's really going to be no different than the public school they're trying to get away from. Just because the local parochial school has a good football team doesn't necessarily mean it's a good fit for your kid. Just because you see Charles Xavier's STEAM Academy for Gifted Youngsters doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good fit for your kid. Maybe it is. But if we're going to promote school choice, we should know what we're choosing and why. So if you right now are considering a new school for your kids, here are five questions to ask that at least in my experience talking to families, most people don't think to ask. Because a lot of people will ask the obvious ones. What's the school's philosophy of education? What curriculum do you use? What are the entry requirements? What are the graduation requirements? What's class size or staff to student ratio? What extracurriculars are available? If you don't ask these things yourself, you'll hear the answers on a tour, or you will read about them on the school's website or their brochure or whatever. These are the bragging points. These are what schools will tell you. And if you can sit in on a class or they have an open house, definitely do that meeting people, seeing the actual teaching style, those things all help, for sure. But once you've gotten those answers, here are five other things that they might not tell you, but you should ask. So number one, how do you measure individual progress? How do you measure individual progress? This is a different question than what classes are available, or what's your graduation rate, or four-year college matriculation rate, or average GPA, or any of that. When I ask this question, what I want to know is will a student's good standing in a course primarily depend on how well they test? And a lot of schools will say no. But then when you ask follow-ups, you can kind of expose their real philosophy. For example, in many schools, they say it's not about test, 
but you can test out of a course or you can test into a higher course or admission is largely based on an entrance exam. And so if one of your main objectives in leaving a public school is to get away from testing, it's just helpful to know if the school is still going to elevate tests as the primary means of evaluation. Same ingredients, different label on the box. So when I ask this question and a school immediately starts talking about demonstrating mastery through projects or portfolios or some real world applications like volunteer hours or starting a business or kind of a trendy thing nowadays is to do a personal development plan where kids work from multifaceted and multimodal objectives that will include character growth. Those kinds of things catch my attention. I'm not saying necessarily that one of those is right or better than the others, but whatever your family's own philosophy of education is, it's important to know if your child's school is going to measure and reward progress in the same way. Because if not, it's a safe bet that you will eventually find yourself at odds with a teacher or administrator because you don't like how your kid is being assessed or the evaluations that your kid is required to complete. So number two, what is an example of a common discipline problem and how do you handle it? Every once in a while, I hear schools say things like, well, our students are so engaged and focused on their projects that we really don't have discipline problems here. Okay, sure. For me, that in itself is a red flag. It's like, what are these kids getting away with? And are you the enabler or are you truly that oblivious? Now, what I'm asking here, and when I, I think anyone asks about discipline, what it really reveals is what's important to administrators. I actually love when schools take this question and immediately start talking about cyberbullying or some kind of peer-to-peer issue, because then I get to hear their approach to conflict resolution, I get to hear how they work to restore trust, and I get the sense that they have eyes on those things and that it matters to them. They really are going to shut it down when they see it happening. If you've got a school that advertises themselves as a STEM school, that integrates technology into every class, but then they say the number one discipline issue is kids being on their phones, that's a disconnect. I'm confused about how you're integrating technology, but also punishing kids for having technology. In any case, though, it's important to understand what expectations your kid will be held to and to see if you're comfortable with how the school will respond. Is this the kind of school where your kid is going to get sent home if they show up with navy blue socks instead of black socks for their uniform? Is it the kind of school where if one kid punches another kid in the face, they just have to apologize and then nothing else happens? On the spectrum of military strict and anything goes, where does this school fall and is that what you want? Question number three, how much debt is your school carrying? Okay, why is this on my list? Private schools, religious schools, I'm going to kind of pick on Catholic schools for a second. I know they are not the only ones, but they often get the bad rap here. In many cases, these schools are in a big, beautiful building. They have athletic stadiums and a sprawling campus. So who's paying for that? Sometimes it's donors, sometimes it's grant money, oftentimes it's tuition, So what I want to know is what percentage of my kids' tuition money is going to pay down the mortgage. I get it. Bills don't pay themselves. But it's important to know up front that the super expensive tuition might not actually be going directly toward your kids' supplies, programs, and teachers. 
By the way, if you really want to be bold here, instead of asking how much debt the school is carrying, ask what are your starting compensation plans for teachers and how often do they receive raises? Yeah, ask that because guess what? We've got the Wild West going on right now in the job market. It is the great resignation post-COVID, and if your tuition that seems pretty expensive isn't going toward fair compensation for the staff, there will be turnover on that staff team, or your teachers will be distracted working part-time on the weekends. So if the tuition seems high to you, make sure you understand if you are paying to send your kid to school or if you're really just paying interest on somebody else's mortgage. That's good to know. And that leads into my fourth question about who decides this kind of thing and potentially, hopefully, brings some fiscal accountability. So that fourth question is, what is the school's governing structure? I like when the director of the school is accountable to other people. I like boards. I like networks. I like plurality of leadership. I'm nervous when it's a one-person show who calls all the shots with no independent oversight or no advisors. If it is a religious school, what's their denominational affiliation and how does that play out? If it's a charter network, who are its affiliates and sponsors? It's one thing for schools to share their policies and philosophies, but you want to make sure that the people who oversee the school are of the same mind. Otherwise, things might seem okay on the tour, but you're looking at a hot mess administratively or some kind of scandal down the road. Uh, these things are just going to take away from the purpose of educating kids. So you want to make sure that there is someone higher in charge of the school and that they're of the same mind of what the school is currently doing. So there aren't going to be all sorts of internal issues. Number five, what is the biggest challenge you're facing as a school? What's the biggest challenge you're facing as a school? Here's why I like this question. See where they put the blame. When I ask this, I cringe at any answer that starts with, well, kids these days, or well, this generation, you know, you've heard it, right? Kids these days just don't want to work hard. Kids these days spend so much time in front of their screens. Kids these days are just forever scarred by COVID-19. And, you know, if a student is not connecting with a school, is the school going to blame it on the students? Are they just going to collectively blame all of Gen Z? Sometimes when you say what's the biggest challenge that you're facing, you're going to hear the school blame the government. You're going to hear them blame a lack of funding. You're going to hear them blame parents sometimes. You know, they won't say that directly. They won't say that to your face as a parent, but they're going to disguise it. They're going to say something like, well, a lot of our students come from difficult backgrounds. Okay, we know what that means. You know, difficult backgrounds is code for family situations. And, you know, there's a reference there. But what's interesting to me is when a school uses this question as an opportunity to take ownership of their own growth. This is when the answer starts with first person instead of third person. We are working toward. We still need to get better at. We are trying to implement in order to do that, we still need to. We are working toward this goal as a school, and this is why we are not there. When I hear something like that, I know this is a missional, goal-oriented school that owns their own development process without making excuses, and they're going to encourage students to do the same. So Jimmy, 
Does any school exist that has a perfect measure of progress, balanced discipline, no debt, responsible governance, and a self-aware growth mindset? I don't know, probably not. Maybe in the metaverse somewhere. But what I challenge you to do, though, is to consider these questions and see what's most important to you. What are your non-negotiables in a school? Things that maybe they won't tell you about in a brochure. But when you dig in a little deeper, you can see if they are aligning with your values or not. Because here's where I'm ultimately going with this. Sometimes we see vouchers as this magic antidote to the woes of public schools. Let's just get out of the bad system and into a good one. Well, depending on your values and depending on your definition of what makes a good school, you might end up disappointed. And you might walk into something that looks and feels a lot like the place you just left. The drum I beat every episode is that at the end of the day, students and families have to own their educational journeys. It is never going to rest solely on the shoulders of a school. So those at-home and independent study components are always going to matter. So no, I don't have a problem with school vouchers in principle. Yes, I support school choice, but let's make sure that we know what we're choosing and why we're choosing it. So thank you for joining me on this episode. If you feel like something's not working in your schooling situation and you want to be creative and proactive and you want to choose your own solution, please reach out. I'm an educator and a curriculum writer. I am here to help in whatever way I can. The website is jimmyleonard.com slash podcast. Kicking It New School is a podcast about challenging some of the longstanding assumptions in education and exploring how we can reach this current generation. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad to be with you. Until next time on Kicking It New School.